Our scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 4, where we'll read the verses 1 through 8, though I'm going to do a little uh, less than I planned today. Shouldn't try to do too much on a communion Sunday, so we will not get to the text until later in the sermon. 2 Timothy chapter 4, page 1855, these words. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. And then verse 7, our text. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. These the very words of God. We're going to look at 2 Timothy 4, in particular, verse 7 today, verse 8, next time the Lord willing. And to help understand these verses, I'm going to bring in the Pilgrim's Progress, I will introduce that book to you and its author now, since many of you will be unfamiliar with author or book. The author is John Bunyan, November 1628 through 1688. He lived in Bedford, England, was a tinker, which means pot and pan maker, and he was also a Puritan Baptist lay minister. He was jailed during his lifetime for nonconformity to the Church of England, a crime in Bunyan's time to have uh, worship outside of the Church of England. And in the jail there, Bedford Jail, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, whole title, Pilgrim's Progress from This World to That Which is to Come. This book is history's second best-selling book, second to the Holy Bible only. It's often called one of the most important works of literature ever written, Christian or otherwise, and the first English novel. It's been translated into more than 200 languages and has never been out of print after being published in 16 
1888. John Bunyan and the Pilgrim's Progress. I shall now read to you the first paragraph of that book and then describe highlights of the rest of the book. Pay special attention to every name and every place as they are all of some spiritual significance. First paragraph, these words. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where was a den and laid me down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. I dreamed, and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags standing in a certain place with his face from his own house, a book in his hand, and a great burden on his back. I looked and saw him open the book and read therein, and as he read, he wept and trembled. And not being able to contain himself any longer, he broke out with a lamentable cry, saying, What shall I do? And he continued his cry, Death, death, because he read, Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face a judgment. And then he cried out, judgment, judgment, from the same text. And then he cried out, hell, hell, how do I escape it? For he read in the good book, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And he dreaded that he was one of those to be destroyed in hell whatever the cause of his physical death might someday be. And in all of this, he also cried out for salvation. And he also cried out for the eternal life that goes with salvation, crying, life, life, eternal life, show me life. He was pilgrim. Well, Pilgrim met some people. One of them was Evangelist. And Pilgrim said to Evangelist, I perceive with a book in my hand I'm condemned to die, and after that the judgment, and after that hell, and I find I'm not willing to do the first and not able to do the second or third. What shall I do? Evangelist replied, Flee from the wrath to come. Which way, cried Christian? Toward that light up yonder there, said Evangelist, pointing across the field. You'll see a wicket gate, and that's W-I-C-K-E-T, which today we would probably call a turnstile or entrance gate. Go toward yonder wicket gate, and you will be told and shown what to do. Christian saw the light far away and moved toward it. But along the way, he saw some people who were not as helpful as evangelists. He saw one, Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Mr. Worldly Wise Man belittled him for not being more worldly wise and concerned about this world and poked fun of his concern for what he read in his book. 
about the world to come. Christian found no comfort from him. And then Christian came upon Mr. Legality, who lived in the city of morality. And Mr. Legality said to Christian, quit. You're pondering. There's a way. You obey the Ten Commandments, and all of your concerns will fall away. And Christian read the Ten Commandments anew, and they scared him the more. For the more sensitive he became to the demands of the Ten Commandments and the law of God, the more he realized his sin. He couldn't save himself through the law, for the law points to sin. And there were other citizens in that town besides Mr. Legality. Some said to Christian, what you need to do is the best you can. That's all any man can do. But that didn't comfort Christian. Some others said, you need to be sincere about what's right. But Christian sensed he needed more than sincerity. Others said, follow the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. And that sounded good to Christian, but none of the above. The Ten Commandments or sincerity or doing your best or being better than the average citizen in that town comforted him. He was ready to give up. He was greatly discouraged. Even fell into the slough of despond. We called it a slough or a mire or even quicksand of despond. But help lifted him up. And once again, evangelists came and said, continue toward yonder wicked gate where you see the light ahead. And then Christian sang to himself, saying, I saw myself a wayworn traveler in tattered garments clad and struggling up the mountain. I am sad. His back was heavy laden, his strength was almost gone, yet shouted as he journeyed, Deliverance will come. Now, before going to the wicket gate, I want to share with you something that I think is of greatest importance. Pilgrim had a burden on his back, the burden of his sin. We too are born with the burden of sin on our backs. The Puritans and the author Bunyan is a Puritan and consistent with their thinking, spoke of God's law as a law work to show us our sin in order to also show us our subsequent need for salvation. For if we don't understand our sin, we won't be driven to seek salvation. I think that's an insight that needs to be heard these days. The best illustration I've heard of the fact of the burden on our back in my 45 years of ministering 
comes from a Jewish evangelist named Raymond Kumper. 30 or more years old now, but he spoke of an airplane with paratroopers, parachute soldiers who were going to jump down. And Comfort said, those paratroopers are taught to jump and then to open the chute. They're not taught to jump and then say, oh, we feel so good about ourselves floating in air now, and we'll just keep floating. Because Comfort says, if they decided to keep floating along, they would eventually go plop on the ground. What they needed to do was open their parachutes, which would give them life. And Comfort says, we must not view ourselves as people just enjoying floating along in this world. We need the parachute of God's salvation through Jesus Christ. Well spoken. In Bunyan's era, Jonathan Edwards preached that great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in which he pictured people as hanging, as it were, by a spider's single thread and a spider web over hell, pointing to the need for salvation. We don't hear that kind of preaching much anymore. Have you ever heard of hellfire and damnation sermons? <laughs> Probably not, unless you're older. When I was in the first 10 years of ministry, I was actually uh, asked to preach one or two of those and to preach about hell. And you don't hear much about that sort of thing anymore, sin and death and hell. So I suggest that the point that's being made by the burden on the back needs to be made today. We're not just good people, and maybe God can make us a little bit better. We're sinners in need of salvation, and that's where Pilgrim is at in the first part of this book. Our confession of faith form, actually, from the same era as Pilgrim's Progress, asks, in part, second question, do you confess that you abhor and humble yourselves before God because of your sin, and that you seek your life not in yourself, but only in Jesus Christ, your Savior. Well put. You know, about 30 years ago, Reverend Blau, some of you know him, he's retired and a member of First Church here. We were talking one day, and I told him, I just read a book by Carl Menninger, Whatever Became of Sin, and Menninger, a psychologist, says, you may not talk about sin in psychology or even public life anymore. It's, it's becoming forbidden to talk about. I said, the Reverend Blau, I see that as a problem. He said, let me tell you something, Joe. He said, I used to teach in the Chicago public school system, and I was a social worker in Chicago. He says, these people would come into the system and they had no knowledge of the Bible or even the Reformed faith 
which tells us that we're born sinners and totally depraved. They go into the schools and into the social work thinking everybody's good, and it blows their minds, and the burnout rate is terrible. He says it's bad theology out there. Good point again. Sin is a burden on the back. Last week, I noticed Representative Nancy Pelosi, she heard our president call MS-13 gang members animals. They go to the schools and shoot and kill and murder and molest and steal and so on and so on. And she condemned that because she said they have a spark of divinity in them. Now, that's Greek terminology from the 200 B.C.s to reflect Plato from the 400 B.C.s, but we have to understand that you start with sin. That's where Christian is at. And so burdened with his own sin, he looks toward that light and moves toward yonder wicked gate. And then I'm going to read you again what Bunyan says when Christian gets there. He says to goodwill the keeper, I am a poor burdened sinner. I came from the city of destruction and am going to Mount Zion that I may be delivered from the wrath to come. And then it says, So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came to the cross, the blessed cross, and notice the blessed Savior, that his burden loosened from off his shoulders and fell from his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. And now Christian, having believed in Jesus his Savior and Lord, has great joy and begins to sing the very words you sang in the refrain, then palms of victory, crowns of glory, palms of victory I shall wear. And my friends, we too must come to that same wicked gate in order to lose our wickedness and at the wicked gate find our salvation. Now, I believe the Reformed way is completely right. The Reformed way has infant baptism, and I will defend that to the hilt except that it's not our subject today. But infant baptism does not in itself save anyone. And infant baptism really is a sign of inclusion of the children with their parents in God's covenant, just as it says in Acts, the promise of the Holy Spirit is to you and your children. But there must come a point where even baptized children come to the point of commitment to following Jesus Christ. And that's what Bunyan is understanding by his wicked gate. Now we come to Christ, all of us, through our own conversion experience. Mine was being brought up in a Christian home and through listening over and over again to Pilgrim's Progress. The Bible has people who come to their conversion in different ways. The prodigal son came to his senses and said, I will go to my father. 
And that's what he did. The publican, Luke 18, in contrast to the tax collector, said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. At Pentecost, Peter encouraged people to their own salvation by saying, save yourself from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized about 3,000 souls and were told they showed their conversion by devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Acts 16, a Philippian jailer, his prisoners escaped by God's grace, which would mean he should have been the recipient of capital punishment the next day. He cried out, what must I do to be saved? And the apostle answered with the simplest formula of all, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you've heard of John 3.16, I quoted it. God so loved the world that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. As I look back on 45 years, almost 50 now, of reading many books, one of the most meaningful books to me, and I accidentally actually took it along, is this book called Conversions by Karen Mulder, which tells of the conversions of 20 or 25 people in church history from St. Augustine on. They're all different. God works in each one of us in his own way and most of us in different ways. But at the same time, we, whatever our conversion experience, and some have great experiences, or gradual coming into, and many of us brought up as Christians in a Christian home from youth on, gradually come to it like I did. Whatever our experience, whatever our process, we have to come to the point where we commit ourselves to God. And that's where Christian came at the wicket gate. And I suggest to you that the profession of faith form we use in this church is one of the most profound Christian commitment forms I have ever heard. The third question asks, do you declare that you love the Lord and that is your heart felt desire to serve him according to his word, to forsake the world, to mortify your old nature, and to leave a godly life. Pilgrim came to that point, and now he becomes no longer pilgrim, but Christian. But after the wicket gate, Christian needs to be cautioned. And he needs to be warned. There are many dangers ahead. It's recommended to Christian that he follow the godly way. And the godly way is narrow and does require fighting the good fight of faith for the rest of one's life. And that's where we come to our text here. The Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, said, I have fought the good fight of the narrow way. I have finished the race. 
along the narrow way. I have kept the faith. Christian was alerted to the text in the book of Matthew, chapter 7, at verse 12, where he was reminded that walk the narrow way, for the way that leads to life is narrow. And he started out along that way. Now, we too need to be reminded that the way of salvation is narrow and we should stay on the path. Another thing I remember from years ago was a young people's lesson. I was talking about Revelation 3 uh, at verse 21, the, the letter to the church of Laodicea. Laodicea is condemned for having lukewarm Christians. And I used the illustration. I asked the young people, are you Christians? Yes, most of them said, silenced by the others. And I said, think of this picture. Christians can be cold or lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, or hot. And I added, cold Christians live too close to the world and follow the worldly ways too much. Lukewarm Christians aren't a lot better because the Bible says God wants to spit them out of his mouth. Hot Christians are those who are loving to their Lord and loyal to him. Now, where do you fit? And I had them draw it on a paper. And the majority of them put themselves in the lukewarm category, which I didn't think was good. I encouraged them to more love for God and loyalty. Christian was encouraged to walk the narrow way. So are we. Now, one of the problems I suspect we deal with today is that too many people are too comfortable being too close to the world. There were words that were familiar to me 40 years ago, such as antithesis. Any of you ever heard that word? Walking antithetically, walking as far from the world as you can. Some of the immigrants of this denomination came to the United States as Dutch pietists, which means they wanted to get away from worldly influence, not close to it. We mustn't lose that. The narrow way does include living antithetically with the world. We become so comfortable sometimes with the things of this world from the television, radio, television, internet, media. We get pushed so much by the world that we're in danger of becoming too worldly. Sunday, football becomes more important than remembering the Sabbath day. And the advertisers get in the act. You get a lot off for shopping on Sunday. And so on and so on. And so therefore, the warning to Christian to walk the narrow way 
is much in order. Now, as Christian leaves the wicket gate, the burden is off his back, the call to walk the narrow way is ahead of them, and he encounters many experiences. We'll talk next week, the Lord willing, about a couple of them, the hill of difficulty, and also the town of the Vanity Fair, which I'll skip today because it's communion. But what I want to do is touch on one more thing today. As Christian walked the narrow way and dealt with the problems, the bypaths, the ditches, and the hills, and all of that, God gave him a helper. It was after the Hill of Difficulty, where he met his helper named Faithful. And so Christian and Faithful walked on together. And they handled the temptations together. That name Faithful means everything. And as I've told you before, when my dad was 90, I commended him in a television interview in Grand Rapids for having the all-important virtue of faithfulness. Faithful. Christian and faithful to cite just two of the enemies they met. One of them was ignorance. Ignorance was content not to know anything about the scripture, but just to go through life in ignorance of what the good book says. Pilgrim's Progress actually ends with ignorance going to hell as he tries to get into heaven because he was ignorant of the way of salvation. Knowledge will not save us, but knowledge is very important to know how to be saved. Ignorance. Christian and faithful together could see through ignorance. The other person they met, Mr. Talkative, is very common today. Mr. Talkative could talk about how he was a Christian, but his talk was shallow, and his talk continually contradicted what the Bible said about how to walk. He was all talk and no walk. And we meet those kind of people too. Millions of them talk as if they're Christians. And of those many millions, other millions won't even set foot in a church. In fact, they brag about how they don't need church. Even though in the New Testament, every Christian also became a church member, and even though the Bible says Jesus loves the church, Ephesians 5, talkative people talk as if they love that, which they don't love, which our Savior loves, and they hate what our Savior loves. You're going to come across people like ignorance and talkative all the time. In that milieu, dear friends, continue along. Fight the good fight. Finish the course, keep the faith. And the single most important characteristic I can give you besides 
calling you to commitment as a Christian is to call you to faithfulness. Our Savior said in Matthew 25, 21 to 23, in the parable, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13 adds, Here is a trustworthy statement. An early church creed is what that was before we got our formal creeds. Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, that means be faithful, he, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, which means we're not faithful, he will also disown us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Dear Christians, remember your commitment to be a Christian, which includes the forgiveness of your sins. Walk the Christian walk. Walk the Christian walk no matter what hills of difficulty you face, no matter what worldliness you face, no matter how many tears you cry, walk the narrow way. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we will do as John Bunyan pictures in the Pilgrim's Progress. We are pilgrims and also Christians. And we will live the Christian way. Amen.